So if you would turn, please, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We're going to be focusing on verses 6 through 8 this morning, but we'll read verses 1 through 11 so we get a bit of the sense of the context of what is going on, so it makes, helps make our passage a bit more sense. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless this reading and our hearing of his holy word, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have granted us such a wonderful gift. Not only do we have your word, but we have your word in a language that we can understand. Lord, that you have given us the church where we can come together, we can sing your praises, we can pray, we can read your word, we can hear your word explained and applied. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, and as we just prayed, that we would be different. Lord, that we would not walk away from the service today the same as when we came. But Lord, may we bear even more closely the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Pictures tell us stories. Pictures tell us stories. There is a, was, an artist named Thomas Cole. I don't know if anybody is familiar with him, but he was famous for painting these incredible landscape paintings. Well, his house is not far from here. It's probably a few hours north of here. It's just in kind of the southern upstate New York area, kind of on the way to Lake George. But he wanted to paint a series of paintings, of portraits, that told the story, the rise and fall of an empire. And he called it the course of empire. It's five different paintings. He went over to Europe, and you can tell in the paintings that that's where he got a lot of his inspiration. But he painted five different paintings. 
The first is kind of this very green area, a lot of just plain old creation there, not much in terms of human development. And then we have the second painting. It's a little bit more, still a lot of green, but we're starting to get some more quote unquote development there. Then the third painting is this beautiful, almost Romanesque city harbor. And there are people going about doing whatever it is that they were doing in their daily business, uh, a merchant, business people, education, whatever it happened to be. The, the streets were filled with people. The sun is noonday, bright and shining off the white marble pillars and columns. It is gorgeous. It's a beautiful painting. On the next one, the sun is starting to set and there are fires in the city because it is under attack and it is being destroyed. And then the last painting is called Desolation. And that's exactly what it looks like. It looks a whole lot like number one, except there's some broken down pillars and columns there. It's the course of empire. It's a picture that tells us a story from beginning to end. And it's interesting, if you look at the Bible, the Bible also tells us stories using pictures. Now these are not pictures to be venerated or to be worshiped, but these are word pictures that tell us stories. If you recall in Genesis 6 through 9, we have the story of Noah and the flood. And what is it that God tells him at the end? He gives him a sign, a symbol, that he will never flood the earth again as he had. And he gives him the picture of a rainbow to serve as a reminder of the promise that God has given to Noah. Then we come into Joshua. Joshua chapter 4. We have the memorial stones. If you remember, the people of Israel, now this is the second generation out of the land of Egypt. The first generation is the one that went through the Red Sea. Well, the second generation has their almost kind of Red Sea moment here in the beginning, where they cross through on dry ground the Jordan River. But before the priests who are carrying the ark, which are in the it's in the middle of the riverbed, before they leave. The 12 tribes, one from each, goes and collects 12 stones, and they build a memorial on the other side of the Jordan. Why do they do this? Again, not so that this is worshipped or venerated or in any such sense, but it serves as a reminder. It serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness now, saying to Abraham, fulfilling the promise, you will have your generations here in this land, and guess what? This is the generation that has crossed into the over the Jordan River on dry ground into the land of Canaan. And so every time a son looks at the memorial and says, Hey, Dad, what is this? He can tell them the story of God's faithfulness to Israel. When we come into the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, we see all sorts of signs and wonders. And what are these signs and wonders meant to do? They're meant to testify, to tell us who Jesus is. They are signs to tell us who Jesus is. So then we come here into Romans chapter 5, and we see the greatest of all pictures, the greatest of all portraits, where we see God's love demonstrated, shown for us, pictured for us here in the cross. And the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not a picture to be painted or to be sculpted. This is a picture painted us 
painted for us with words. Verse 6 of chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning, what we want to see with our mind's eye is the character, the nature of God's love for us in Christ shown in the cross and how we are to respond to that love with faith-filled love and obedience for him. So the nature of God's love, we'll look at it in three different aspects. The first is that God's love is sacrificial. The second is that God's love is for sinners. And the third is that God's love is steady and secure. So let's walk through this passage together, starting in verse 6. What is the nature of God's love? Well, first of all, God's love is sacrificial. Now we need to be careful anytime we just kind of helicopter land in the middle of a book like we're doing here, is we need to understand a bit of the context of what's going on in the rest of the book. Make sense? So if you turn just briefly over to Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, we read this. For there is no distinction at the very end of the verse. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is sent. The second person of the Trinity takes on human nature. He is a God-man, and he is the substitute. He is the propitiation. He not only wipes away our guilt, but he receives the wrath of God upon himself for our sin. What great love it is for anyone to be the sacrifice for someone else. In John 15, 13, we read the greatest kind of human love is that for a man to lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus Christ comes as the propitiation, as the sacrifice for us. But we need to not be too quick here. We need to understand whose love it is exactly we're talking about. Well, if you look at verse 5, we see, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We don't want to split up the Trinity in any sense. We don't want to separate. But what we're looking at here is a question of emphasis. We're looking at the Father's love for his people. Father's love demonstrated in sending his Son as the sacrifice for our sins. And what great love it is for a father to send his son to die for someone else. God's love is sacrificial. You know, we hear from critics of the gospel, well, well, God is mean. God is unjust for requiring that sin be punished. Why doesn't he just wipe it away himself? It's, it's not fair that God does this. God is mean. He is vengeful. He is wrathful. Well, actually, this is the, that's the entirely wrong way to look at it. 
First of all, we are the creature. He is the creator. It is his prerogative to do as he pleases, and it is not us to question who God is and what he is doing. Actually, to delay judgment is an act of mercy. God could immediately judge all of us for our sin, like that. And he does not need to provide us an explanation of what he is doing. He is completely just in doing that. But you think of God's love for us, in that he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners, to be the sacrifice on our behalf, to take our sin upon himself, and to give us his righteous record of complete obedience. God's love is sacrificial. But not only is God's love sacrificial, God's love is also for sinners. God's love is for sinners. We're going to look at verses 6, 8, and actually 10 as well. So who does Christ die for? The weak. And we don't mean those who need to get to the gym in order to pump some iron or go out and run a few miles and get some strength. What we're talking about is moral weakness, not able to do what is right. Those who are morally weak are also ungodly. Verse 8, we were still sinners. And then in verse 10, we were enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. But recall, what is the greatest kind of human love? It is that a man would lay down his life for his friends. God's love is so surpassingly greater than any love between human beings because God sends his son not to die for his friends, but to die for his enemies, those who are sinners, those who are morally weak, those who are ungodly. Look at the logic of verse 7. Paul moves from kind of a lesser to a greater year. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, or as New King James has it, a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one would dare even to die. So you start looking at the logic and you say, well, for a, a good man or a righteous man, one who does right, perhaps, mm, perhaps maybe one day, very rare, someone would lay down their life on behalf of that person. And then you see, okay, well, if, if, that's, if that's rare, well, maybe something that's quite, just a little bit less rare, is that we would die for a good person. Not only one who does right, but one who does good. And maybe, maybe as a bonus, he's even a, a nice fellow. Maybe, maybe somebody would die for that but God sends his son not to die for someone who does right, not for someone who is good, but for those who are completely and utterly opposed to him, his enemies, us, in our sinful human nature. He sends to die for us, for sinners, sinners like you and me. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we are not that lovely. We are not that lovable. We're more like a porcupine than we are 
a teddy bear. We are sinners left to ourselves. You may say, well, it's not, it's not very nice to tell someone that they are sinners. We like the, the after picture, not the before. But in order to understand what the after picture is, we need to understand and see the before picture. Without Jesus Christ, we are sinners. We are not able to keep God's law. We are under his wrath and judgment. You might say, well, being called a sinner doesn't make me feel very good. I don't like it. Please stop saying that. And people you talk to might tell you the same thing as you try to share the good news of the gospel with them. But actually, if you think about it, the most loving thing that you can hear is how you relate to God. If you are a sinner and you are at odds with God, the gospel is incredibly wonderful news. If you are redeemed and you know it, that God has sent his Son on your behalf so that you may be made right with him, what assurance and how wonderful that is as well. It is loving to tell people the truth. It is not mean and an ugly thing to do. The most unloving thing that you can do is actually withhold that information from those whom you claim you love. God's love is for sinners. You think about it, if you aren't a sinner, you aren't eligible for it. You think of Luke 18 and the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, he spurns God's love, and the tax collector, he begs for God's mercy. We read this in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. If you don't recognize your own sin, that you are a sinner both in nature and in action, and you don't come to God in the love that he offers, then you are actually missing out on the greatest love that the world has ever known. God's love is for sinners. But we also need to see that God's love is steady and it is secure. It is steady and it is secure. Thomas Schreiner is a commentator and he wrote this about this passage. He said, God's love is anchored in the death of Christ who died for the weak, the ungodly, sinners, and his enemies. Now, this isn't kind of an amorphous blob of love that we can just feel anything that we want in it and it makes us feel good. This is actually very, this is specific, right? This is God's love that is given to us through the Holy Spirit at conversion. This is God's love for his people. We see that in verse 5. But we need to be very careful about the way that we use the word love. Because this love here is not some subjective, amorphous blob we can fill with anything that we want. This love is anchored. It is rooted outside of us. It does not depend on how you and I feel. 
God's love for us is rooted outside of us in the objective work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. You see, whether you wake up and it's raining or you wake up and it's sunny, God's love for you is still as objectively true. It is steady. It is secure. Whatever the weather is doing, whatever you feel like, whatever circumstances are in your life, God's love for you is the same because it is based outside of you in the objective work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The world is going to define, define this term, love, however it wants to. And it changes from week to week and day to day. God's love for you, believer, never changes from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. It is objectively true. It is real. It is steady. And it is secure. We need to be very careful we don't just take on the world's definition and use it as our own. The world loves the warm fuzzies, and they have their place. But guess what? We're not Captain Kirk, just getting tossed to and fro by the changing circumstances and relying on our emotions to drive us. Now, we're not Mr. Spock, either. We're not totally emotionless. We understand that there is an emotional part of love. But even our emotional lives need to be trained by God's word. We don't approach God's word and see what our emotions respond to it. We let our emotions be trained by what God's word says. Because if you don't feel God's love for you on a particular day, guess what? Your feeling is wrong. And you need to replace it and inform it, shape it with what God's word says you that God loves you he has already shown it what more does he need to do he has shown you that he loves you indeed the good news is that we can be sure for God's love for us it's not based in us but objectively outside of ourselves so how do we respond to this wonderful love that we see here displayed for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, if you come today and you have never repented and turned to Jesus Christ in faith, today's the day. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have this afternoon. Now is the time to repent and turn from your sin. You know, John Calvin says that our hearts are idle factories. We're always making some other thing to be God, whether it's ourselves or something else, self-rule, money, prestige, whatever it might be for you. If, if God is not number one, then you're trying to be number one yourself. But let me ask you this about any kind of idol that you have in your life. Has that idol, again, whatever it might be, ever sacrificed himself for you? Has it done anything for you except to take and take and take until there is nothing left. Test your idol against the love and the faithfulness of Almighty God and see who comes out first. Turn from doing whatever quote-unquote feels good. Turn from trying to be your own boss and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and submit your life and your will to him. Turn from your sin, repent, let it go, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith.
But for those of us who are believers, how do we respond to this wonderful love that we see here in the cross in Romans chapter 5? A little story that I think will illustrate the way that we can do so. You see, a number of years ago, there was this little fella, little third grader, and his dad got a new job in a new town, and guess what that means? New school. So he went to school, and public education system was much different in this fella's area, and it was quite a long time ago. But he went to a new school, and he was a kind of a sensitive sort. And the class that he was in, well, it was very chaotic. The teacher there should have retired many years ago, but he was still there, could not control the class. And that, that father degraded against the little guy, and he would, he would break down and cry because the, the class was just incredibly chaotic. And so this happened kind of time and time again. So the parents got called in and they said, well, you know, we really need to, to fix this. This is not a healthy way for the little fella to really deal with the issues in the class. And so they, they agreed and they came up with a strategy for this little guy. And what they did is they gave him a picture that he could keep in his desk. At that time, they actually had these things called desks with a compartment underneath that you could put those things called books and notebooks in there. And every time that the class was getting really chaotic and things were all out of sorts, he could take the picture out and he could look at it. The picture was that of his family, of his mother, his father, him and his sister. And he could take it out and he could look at it and he could be reminded of their love for him and his love for them and actually God's love for them all. And instead of concentrating on the chaos around him, he could concentrate on that which is true, of God's love for him, of his family's love for him. And it worked. The little fella stopped crying all the time, and he could keep that picture in his desk. And for us as believers, we have a similar, a better picture than that. We have a reminder of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Each time we see the world or our own lives as being so chaotic and wild and, and crazy, and we are tempted to doubt God's love for us, we can look up. We can look up to the cross, not as a crutch, but as a vivid reminder of what is true, of God's love for us. It is more true, in some sense, than the circumstances that we face each day. We can pull it out, and we can be reminded of God's love for us. So how can we not respond, but with wholehearted faith, and love, and obedience to our Heavenly Father? 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that that is one died for all, that all died, and he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We'll close with the words of Francis Xavier from the 1500s. My God, 
I love you. Not because I hope for heaven in that way, nor yet because those who don't love you are lost eternally. You, oh my Jesus, you embraced me upon the cross. For me, you bore the nails and spear and many a disgrace and numberless griefs and torments and sweat of agony. Yes, death itself and all for me who was your enemy. Then why, O oh blessed Jesus Christ, should I not love you well, not for the sake of winning heaven, nor of escaping hell, not from the hope of gaining a thing, not seeking a reward, but as you have loved me, O oh ever-loving Lord. So would I love you, dearest Lord, and in your praise will sing, solely because you are my God and my ever-loving King. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, hear the words of your Holy Scripture. You have given us a picture, a picture to look and to be reminded, to look to you and the love that you have displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, may we respond to this love by your grace with faith-filled love and obedience for you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.